The EMS Research Podcast is a production of emsradio.com. To interact with us, go to www.researchems.com, where you can find us on Twitter or Facebook. Just search for EMS Research. Hello and welcome to episode one of the EMS Research Podcast. My name is Harry Mueller. I'll be one of your hosts. Our goal for the podcast is to discuss current research related to EMS in a way that field providers can understand and find relevant. Each episode will have a specific topic and we'll present a limited number of published papers on that topic and discuss the relevance and implications to the EMS community. Our topic tonight is emergency cardiac care guidelines, and we'll be discussing papers published in the uh, July-September 2010 edition of Pre-Hospital and Emergency Care. Before we get into the research, I'd like to introduce tonight's panel and have them uh, tell you something about themselves um, in no particular order. Uh, First off, Tom Boothelay. How are you doing, Tom? Hi, Harry. Sorry about that. This can all be edited out, correct? I, I had to unmute myself. Sorry about that. Anyway, um, I'm Tom Boothelay. I'm a fire lieutenant paramedic with Hilton Head Island Fire and Rescue in Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. I have taught nationally in the critical care transport program out of UMBC, and I currently serve on the EMS Advisory Committee of the South Carolina chapter of the American Heart Association's Mission Lifeline. And... Um, I'm the uh, editor of the pre-hospital 12-lead ECG blog at ems12lead.com. Excellent. Uh, Also joining us is uh, Patrick Lickus. Patrick, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Um, A little background on myself. I'm a a paramedic for a private provider in the San Francisco Bay Area. I've been in EMS for about 10 years uh, for the last six as a paramedic. Um, I also work as a uh, preceptor and a field training officer and uh, have some experience uh, as a paramedic lab instructor as well. Um, I publish uh, the 510 Medic blog at 510medic.com. Great. Uh, William Toon. Hi, and uh, Bill is fine. Good, okay. good to see every, have everyone online tonight and uh, to be chatting and stuff. I work as a battalion chief training for Johnson County Medac, which is a third service agency in Johnson County, Kansas, just outside of the Kansas City metropolitan area. Uh, 70% of my work is uh, devoted to continuing education, and then I have uh, 30% of uh, operational responsibilities, which is a relatively... Uh, new task for me, and uh, I've been involved in emergency medical services since 1975, so I've been around for a few of the guidelines over all of these years, so this will be a good discussion tonight. Great. Uh, Tim Noonan, how are you tonight? Doing all right. I was, uh, uh, I've been in EMS for 20 years, about 17 of that as a medic, been teaching for about the same amount of time. Been teaching longer than that because I was teaching before I got into EMS. And I'm working for a small company in the suburbs of Philadelphia. I've also worked in New York, New Jersey, and California. And I uh, write roguematic.com. Terrific. Kyle David Bates, how are you? 
Good, Harry. How are you? Good to, good to be on today. Uh, with the background of me, I've been in EMS for about 20 years. I'm an, a paramedic with a ton of Tonawanda paramedics here in New York. I am a author, both in, in uh, textbooks and magazines, a podcaster, graphic designer, medical photographer, dishwasher, bottle cleaner, anything that's useful for that. Terrific. I should also point out that uh, Kyle designed the... Uh the uh, logo for the podcast, which uh, which you'll see on iTunes and on our website once that's up. Um, again, my name is Harry Mueller, a little of my background. Um, I've been in EMS since 1980, last 25 years of it as a paramedic. Currently, I'm working for a small uh, combination service in New Hampshire, uh, McGregor Memorial EMS. Uh, we're uh, part paid, part volunteer. We cover three small towns and the University of New Hampshire. Um, I have no background in podcasting, as you can probably tell. I also have no particular background in uh, EMS research. I only got interested in research when I started doing protocol development. Um, so I'm looking forward to these topics and uh, learning more about research and uh, hopefully touching base with some, uh, some very interesting and, and uh, wise people, wiser than I am. Um, joining us from the American Heart Association Emergency Cardiac Care Committee is Luis Gonzalez. Luis, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little about your background? Sure, and thank you for the invitation. Um, my background, my primary job is uh, as uh, a what most people call a quality improvement coordinator. My official title is performance management and research coordinator for the uh, Office of the Medical Director for Austin Travis County EMS in Austin, Texas. Um, we basically over provide medical direction for 2,200 providers in the Austin EMS system. Um, about 350 of those are paramedics, and the rest are BLS providers. Um, so that's my primary job. Um, similar to Tom, I, I do a sideline role with Mission Lifeline locally um, as the QI group's um, co-chair. And I also served on one of the national uh, Mission Lifeline um, committees prior to uh, stepping down because I have a new role with the AHA. It's a consulting role in which... Um, I'm the senior science editor for the uh, what most people would think of as the layperson CPR um, in related products, so first aid and those types of things for the laypersons. Um, so those portions of the guidelines that affect um, that audience are the portions that um, I work with the most. Um, I've been in EMS for about 25 years, about 20 of those as a paramedic. Um, I trained in first in Texas, and then I retrained um, with the Seattle King County Medic One System um, about 18 years ago, um, which is where I first became in interested in, in research, um, since they do a little bit of that in the King County area. So I was uh, indoctrinated well and learned a lot from from some very amazing um, researchers. It sounds like we have a very experienced panel tonight. I think that should uh, add a lot to the discussion. So the uh, paper that we're going to discuss was suggested by Tom Boothelay, and Tom has agreed to give us a, a brief summary of, uh, of what the paper talked about, and uh, then we will uh, spend some time talking about it and uh, making it relevant to, uh, to the EMS field provider. Thanks, Harry. So for tonight's podcast, we looked at two different articles. One of them came from the United States and Canada, and the other came from 
the Netherlands. Both of them looked at a fairly simple question, and that question was, how long does it take emergency medical systems to implement the 2005 ECC guidelines into their clinical practice? They looked at it two entirely different ways, but they both came to the same conclusion, and that conclusion is it takes a really long time for the ECC guidelines to be translated into protocols and then rolled out onto the floor. And then probably once rolled out into the floor to where actually uh, paramedics are out there implementing it in the field. So first, let's look at the one from the United States and Canada. And this comes to us from the Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium or the ROC Investigators. And I'll go ahead and call this study up here. This one is called Delayed Pre-Hospital Implementation of the 2005 American Heart Association Guidelines for Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Emergency Cardiac Care. It was published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care in the, in the July to September issue of this year, 2010. And before we go any further... I'm going to take a couple of snippets out of the introduction because I think it sets the table well on, this, on why this is a problem in the first place. First of all, they estimate that approximately 300,000 people suffer from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest each year in the United States. Now, I looked in the English Wikipedia and found out that there are about 310 million people in the United States. So if we kind of round that off to 300 million, the incidence of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in the United States of America is approximately one of every thousand people. So might be a, a little bit less, might be a little bit more in your community, but right now if you're not tracking the total number of cardiac arrests that happen in your jurisdiction and it, like you're not reporting to the CARES registry or you don't have your own internal database so you don't even know your numbers, if you can estimate your community's population, you can probably start out with a rough guesstimate of one of, if you have 50,000 people in your community, you might have up to 50, um, 50 out-of-hospital cardiac arrests a year. Now, all, not all of them will be witnessed, and, and, and maybe only half of them will be witnessed, and maybe not all of them will be a cardiac cause, but you have to start somewhere. So that's probably a pretty good rough estimate. Now, it's been estimated that perhaps only 55% of patients in the United States um, receive medical care that adheres to scientific evidence-based guidelines. And just so everyone realizes this isn't just us picking on emergency medical systems, it might be a patient inside the hospital that's, not, that's had an acute myocardial infarction that's not discharged with a beta blocker. So we do know from other studies that when we adhere to evidence-based guidelines, our patients tend to do better and mortality tends to be lower. We know from various studies, and this is all coming from this rock study, this is all part of the introduction, they mention that there's four other studies out there that describe significant delays to the implementation of therapeutic hypothermia, for example. And I think we're all very much aware, and many of us may be part of EMS systems that still 
are not um, bringing this life-saving therapy to their cardiac arrest patients. And they introduce a new term called knowledge translation. And what they mean by that is the method by which we translate knowledge that is obtained and derived through these evidence-based guidelines and then turn around and translate them into protocols and education for our paramedics out in the field. And then how we follow up and make sure that those guidelines are being adhered to. So if you're not familiar with the, with the uh, Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium, it consists of 10 different clinical centers, which covers 11 different regions across North America, uh, including Canada. Now, one thing I found interesting is that two of those clinical centers were excluded from this trial because it was determined that they were already using guidelines too similar to the 2005 guidelines when they were released. So it would have been impossible to determine when they switched to the 2005 guidelines. And one of the things, one of the reasons I find that interesting is if you're familiar with the research and you've been paying attention to the evidence, you can kind of guess which way it's going to go every five years when it comes out in the ECC guidelines. So clearly, there were already some EMS systems out there that were minimizing interruptions to chest compressions, and uh, maybe they had already eliminated stacked shocks or something like that. So they, were, so they were eliminated. What they ended up with is 178 EMS agencies um, that participated in a brief telephone survey. And, uh, and so that's all it was. It was it was just a telephone survey that was administered to a, during a five month period from November of 2007 to March of 2008. And they just wanted to see, um, were you implementing the key components of the 2005 guidelines? And uh, so it was pretty simple. They looked at things like when you found a patient that had suffered an out of hospital cardiac arrest and no quality CPR was being performed at the time that EMS arrived, did you start CPR right away or did you immediately analyze the rhythm and shock? Because in the old days, we couldn't analyze the rhythm and shock fast enough. But at the 2005 guidelines, a lot of us started to initiate CPR prior to the first analysis of the heart rhythm. They also looked at whether or not there was a single defibrillation attempt as opposed to three stacked shocks. They looked at whether or not two minutes of CPR was performed between defibrillation attempts, and they wanted to see if there was an emphasis on CPR quality, including the rate and depth of compression, and complete chest recoil and minimizing the interruptions to chest compressions. And then they asked the EMS system to just sort of self-declare what they refer to as crossover time, or the, or the moment at which um, the, from the time that the guidelines were published in December of 2005 to the time that they had reported comprehensive implementation of the 2005 guidelines. Their response rate from the, surge, the, from the survey was pretty impressive. 176 of 178 agencies responded, which was 99%. And uh, 174 of them had implemented the, the 1995 guidelines. I'm not sure about the other two. I guess they still hadn't implemented them yet. So um, what did they find out? Well, they found out that the mean delay time was 416 days. 
that's about 14 months from the time that the guidelines were published to the time that they were actually implemented out in the field. And it was hugely variable. It ranged from 49 days to 750 days, which is more than two years. And one of the interesting things that they found out is intuitively they thought, well, the smaller EMS agencies were probably able to implement the process sooner because there's fewer paramedics to train. But they found out the exact opposite. The larger the agency was, the sooner they implemented the updated guidelines. And they go on to speculate as to various reasons that that, that might be, including educational commitment and uh, more, more involved medical directors and a more supportive infrastructure. But that was one finding that they, they sort of weren't expecting. And so they go on to make the statement that medical directors and regulators and EMS administrators have the opportunity to be opinion leaders and agents of change and should maximize their position to enhance knowledge translation. Again, that's that term they coined, knowledge translation, turning the evidence-based guidelines into field practice. They go on to mention a few other things like the difficulty once the guidelines come back. I'm sure we all struggled with the fact that we had, for example, AEDs that were monophasic and programmed to deliver stacked shocks instead of single shocks. And they discuss a little bit of the delay that was caused perhaps by various bureaucratic agencies like the Food and Drug Administration. And they go on to make the comment that um, the release date of future guidelines should be advertised well ahead of their publication to allow EMS agencies to anticipate practice change and should include implementation targets for these agencies so that they can strive to meet. So, so basically, the take-home message is the guidelines get published, but do you have an implementation strategy? And one is forced to, to sort of speculator guess that an organization that took 25 months to implement the guidelines probably didn't have a plan and probably had no benchmarks and, and probably uh, didn't plan it out very well. So um, that, that's pretty much it for the one that, would, that happened with the, uh, with the rock trial. Um, Tim, did you want to uh, discuss the one from the, from the Netherlands? No, I think we should cover this one first. One interesting thing about this is this is the rock group. So uh, they're probably better organized than your average EMS agency. So the short end, the 49-day um, implementation is probably faster than average. And the 750-day implementation is probably faster than average at the low end also, or at the high end of uh, taking too long to implement it. And, Tom, I want to thank you. You did a very nice summary there, but I would I want to echo with uh, Tim's case. As we were looking at um, the rock sites, which are already geared up to be participating in the study of resuscitation information. So, and... Um, uh, Kyle, I, I don't remember the exact date, but I know one of the problems with New York State is they have a state pro minimum protocol. And I know I was lecturing back in New York in 2007 or 2008. I think it was 2008, and they were still waiting for the state to come out with the updated uh, BLS and ALS protocols that would incorporate the guideline changes. Yeah, the, the BLS 
the protocols are state protocols. The ALS protocols are uh, regional for that. So, yeah, it's it's kind of interesting watching the uh, the CMAC, which is a state uh, EMS advisory committee, work through these uh, when you have a panel of very doctors from very different areas, anywhere from rural areas such as Wyoming County to Long Island. There's different thought processes behind them. Well, but it was a long it was a long time though I remember in New York before they they really got them fully implemented so the protocols would allow them to start even doing them oh absolutely it's always been it's always been an issue it that definitely does enter into things I know here in New Hampshire our protocols come out they're statewide on the ALS and BLS level they come out every two years in March and if new ECC guidelines come out too late in the protocol process, they're going to wait an extra two years before they're implemented fully because these protocols come out as one monolithic thing every two years. Occasionally, they will make some minor tweaks, but uh, implementing new ECC guidelines is not what I would call a minor tweak most of the time. So that certainly throws another wrench into implementing them in a timely fashion. Well, and we're in the... Because of, uh... Go ahead. Oh, sorry. We're uh, we're in the same boat out here in that we, we have a new set of protocols released once a year. And uh, I, I was part of the protocol committee this year, and I know we had kind of pushed it back and pushed it back in, in anticipation of the guidelines coming out. And it eventually got to a point where all the mandatory training occurs at one time at the end of the year, and it's centered around this mandatory, uh, the um, protocol updates. And so we've unfortunately... I believe, had to go without uh, updating to the 2010 guidelines only because we, don't, we didn't have them available and had to print the protocol books and plan the training. And so uh, we're also going to be in the same boat of, of likely having at least a year spin-up time before we're compliant with the new set. But, I mean, how much of it do you also feel that the implementation is based on cost? If I just put you know, a whole bunch of people through CPR class... I may not spend all the time to get a new card for him until two years. Well, I think I think that's certainly part of it, but I think that when you're looking at protocols, the protocols are, for better or worse, independent from, say, ACLS guidelines. If I have a, a current ACLS card, I still go to this mandatory protocol update every year. And so regardless of when I got my ACLS card, it costs my provider the same amount to keep me ACLS current and also have me attend this, this yearly training. See, we've made the decision in our system to disconnect our practice, clinical practice from AHA, BCLS, and ACLS. We still have the people uh, take those courses and get those certifications, but they don't apply to the practice in our system because we don't follow AHA guidelines in our system. We made a conscious decision that not to use them, you know, tangentially use them. We don't really follow them, uh, I would say, very loosely. So I would say, um, and I think that's a very good uh, point there, is there should be a distinction between um, the science and the guidelines and training, the training courses that come from those, because I, I and I believe, um, was that... Um, Bill, was that you that was just speaking to that? Yes. Um, and I believe you work with Mark Terry out there in Johnson County. 
Oh, I'm um, sorry to hear you know, Mark. <laughs> so, I, and I think that's uh, that's a it's a it's a very good point in dis- distinguishing between those things, um, because the guidelines certainly could be implemented in a variety of different ways, depending on the resources or the capabilities or other um, specific characteristics of an EMS system. And I will offer um, in my role as the representing my um, EMS system. Um, we are very much like you in that we have just made the change to not require, on the training side, require the ACLS card, the BLS card, or any of those other kinds of things. We offer them, but they're not required. That's very different than what we did um, for protocol development where we looked at the science. And we went through the literature and uh, did that uh, over the last couple of years to start working on changing our protocols, our clinical practice based on what we thought was best and our medical director thought was best based on his review of the, of the science. So that's a very good distinction in the difference between the science and the guidelines and training. Well, I think that's an interesting an important distinction to make, and I know it's one that, that I know Tim feels strongly about is practicing in day-to-day patient care, practicing evidence-based medicine, whereas maybe when the guidelines come out, that dictates training but shouldn't necessarily dictate practice. And I think that um, you two are, are lucky enough to be in a system where that, that seems to be uh, the established practice now. And, and, and it's, it's not like that where I work, and, and I wish it were. Well, let's talk about, I think, the, I think first of all, start having worked over, I think, under almost every AHA guideline, maybe I missed the first one in my practice, they've continued to get better and better about their processes, everywhere from how they look at the science and make their decisions, all the way through how they finally roll it out and present it to the entire public. From what happened in the early days to what they're doing now is 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 a light year's difference. And uh, uh, Luis Gonzalez, it'd be good to hear you just talk a little bit about some of what we've said already regarding guidelines and practice and stuff. Well, I, I certainly agree with what you uh, just stated, and I was not involved in the guidelines early on um, as as you were, um, and and um, and so I, I feel bad that I wasn't. Um, but I think you're absolutely correct that in the earlier uh, guidelines, um, um, there were lots of opportunities for improvement, and and hopefully uh, those have been taken advantage of. And every time they continue to change, even from 2005 to 2010, the process changed. So in 2005, we thought the process was fairly well done, um, had, a, had a, a, a major improvement in, in addressing the conflict of interest um, um, disclosure process, um, but learned some lessons even then and took those into, into account in 2005. Um, they are very strict. Um, so that, I think that's an important um, um, uh, notation, though, is that they continue to improve. They're still not where, we, where the AHA wants them to be, but we, we need to learn the lessons each time and, and try to incorporate um, improvements. So I think there, there are some in that process. Um, this particular time, um, probably the largest ever in terms of the amount of people involved. Um, I believe the last number I heard was um, in the international group, which is where all the science comes from, from ILCOR, um, there were over 300 um, experts, resuscitation research experts, who were involved in in reviewing the evidence, presenting their particular topic, and then all of the others having the opportunity to then debate um, the the merits or 
or the strength of the evidence. Um, that's a lot of, of people who are all experts, um, and that's very different than where it was, um, say, you know, in the 92 um, guidelines, which are a much smaller group, much smaller group. And, and I think that the process that they use, the working groups, it's, it, you know, because uh, uh, my uh, deputy chief of my department is on the uh, pediatric uh, education component and the, just all the different groups and how they work together. And the fact that the people, all these experts come together uh, and they, they don't get paid for their expert time. I mean, they're paid. I mean, they're compensated, I believe for their hotel and their food per diem, but they're not paid for all the time that they give into this process here. So I, I think that's a, a a big commitment on some very busy people to try to help forward the science of emergency cardiovascular care. You know, we may focus a lot on the cardiac arrest component, but it truly has expanded to look at other time-critical diagnoses, STEMI, as well as stroke, and the role that it plays. So I, I'm, I continue to be impressed. I, I still think it's a, it certainly is a, a battleship, you know, or a large cruise liner. It doesn't move on a dime. Um, I'd, I'd like to comment on your your very important note about the the payment, and that is a deliberate thing, um, mostly, um, and that is because uh, as we as we all evaluate research, and I'm certain all of you do the same thing. One of the first things I do when I go look at an article is I look to see who the authors are and their affiliations, and I look for the funding. Where is the sponsorship of that? Not to discount the entire article, um, but to at least give me an idea of where might they be coming from. And what potential biases um, might be there? And so many of these researchers who who are involved in the development of the guidelines want to distance themselves from those kinds of things. Um, at least they try, um, because uh, they know that that can that can actually be looked looked upon negatively. And and to all of them, their research is their life. That's what they commit themselves to. So it's everything. If their research is flawed or or considered to be biased. Um, that affects them um, personally and professionally. So I think that's an important um, um, point. And even as this this article um, uh, from PEC, um, I looked to see who the authors were. Some of them I, I know, so I know kind of uh, what their uh, affiliations are. Um, and I know kind of where to start with that. One of the problems with conflict of interest is we act as if money is the only conflict. While that is far from the truth, there are some people who will be completely objective, even if it means a lot of money to them. I've walked away from jobs that paid well because uh, it just was not worthwhile for me ethically to stay there. And, you know, that's something that we need to take into consideration as well. We spend too much time focusing on the money rather than looking at was the research set up appropriately to be as objective as possible. And, you know, you get people looking at it, it's like, oh, look, they're getting some money from somewhere. And that's more of a distraction for the people who don't understand the actual research methodology. Um, I think that's a that's a that's a very good point, and and often those who who don't receive any money, um, still have the there was a perception of others that there was a 
um, conflict. There actually was an example of that in 2000, um, where a researcher who 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 study um, and I and I in full interest of disclosure, I was part of that study as a paramedic in that system, um, looking at an antiarrhythmic and um, and uh, there was funding from the the manufacturer to support that uh, that research, which is of course one of the that's one of the problems, as we all know, about research. It's hard to fund. Um, but um, happen, I happen to know that particular that particular physician researcher and was part of that study and and feel very confident that there was no conflict, just as you just said. And it had nothing. There was no money um, issues at all because he wasn't receiving anything personally. He was just receiving uh, uh, funding to uh, create the the research that has to go on, which is how you collect the data and how do you blind things, how do you make sure that that um, um, paramedics get the training they need to be able to implement the study correctly, and and um, that's where all the, the money went. So you're absolutely right. It's not just uh, money. It's it's often um, other things um, that have to be looked at, um, but all they are is just um, things to, to consider, but they should, should not change our opinion. Um, you're right. The methods and the and the, the conclusions and the data to support it um, should be able to support themselves. I usually look at the limitations of a study to find out how objective uh, some of the authors are being because that's where you see where they point out the problems that they had in setting up the study or the things that surprised them during the course of the study. That's a, a very good point. And, and this particular article from PEC um, you know they did they did mention um, some some specific ones. Um, there probably could be a, a, others, but I, I think they did a fairly good job of of trying to um, to state um, some potential limitations, um, including the the what they recognize at the very top of their limitations is the potential for for two different types of bias, um, and which would definitely be there with uh, an EMS system who's participating in a rock. Um, as a rock site, uh, you certainly would prefer to think of yourself one way versus whatever is reality. Well, I think another on the the topic of limitation, I think they're they're looking at the implementation, pre-hospital implementation of the guidelines, and it's important to note that just because a an agency requires that patient care be done a certain way, it doesn't necessarily mean that patient care is being done that way. And I know at least anecdotally from my experience, when the, the new guidelines came out, there were a variety of providers, individual and institutional, who never really got up to speed, at least in the first year or two that the guidelines were out. And so looking at actual implementation without, I think, polling the providers or, or figuring out some way to to determine if this is actually making it to the streets, I think I think that's an, a limitation in itself. You know what, Patrick? I think this is actually a pretty good dovetail into the study that was done in in the Netherlands. Um, did did everyone have an opportunity to review the methodology there? Be, because they actually, um, and and it's kind of interesting because I had just watched a a podcast. I'm sorry, a webcast at Gems Connect a, a couple of weeks ago that was taken from Houston, where it showed how they use data derived from the LifePack 12 in the CodeStat suite software to sort of um, use the impedance channel to take an actual look at the at the rate 
of um, of CPR and, and and the frequency of ventilations and and the total time off the chest for all of their cardiac arrests. And I was absolutely blown away by the podcast. I didn't realize that this had already been in use um, in other EMS systems and most notably in the Netherlands for, for this study here, um, where they actually uh, utilized data from the field to make a, a actual determination as to whether or not the guidelines were being followed. Um, would this be a good time to go over that? I'll take that as a yes. Okay. So, um, so this, this next study is called um, Time Needed for a Regional Emergency Medical System to Implement Resuscitation Guidelines 2005, the Netherlands Experience. And this one is uh, published in the Journal of Resuscitation, which is the official journal of the, Europe the European Resuscitation Council. And um, I just found out prior to tonight's webcast that Mr. Noonan has actually been in the Netherlands, and unless he was putting us on, that he speaks Dutch. So I'm interested in, in hearing about his experiences over there. But if you're not familiar with the Netherlands, it's a pretty small country in northwest Europe, and it is situated on the North Sea between Belgium and Germany. And it's sometimes referred to as Holland, but uh, actually North and South Holland are actually just two small, uh, two of 12 provinces in the Netherlands. And so this particular study comes from the University of Amsterdam, which is in North Holland. And this is a jurisdiction that has about 2.6 million people in uh, just over a thousand square miles. So it's roughly the size of Orange County, California. And the purpose of the study, again, was to determine how long it took for emergency medical systems personnel to implement the 2005 resuscitation guidelines. This was a prospective observational study that took place between July of 2005 to January of 2008. And they included all patients with an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with a suspected cardiac cause. And all, all calls there are handled through a regional EMS dispatch center. And if the chief complaint or the caller suggests a possible cardiac arrest, they dispatch two ALS ambulances to the scene. And again, they use uh, Physio Control's Life Pack 12. And so they were able to download all the data into the code stat suite system and look at the impedance channel to take an actual look at chest compressions. And so if just in case some of you have no idea what I'm talking about, um, when they put the combi pads on a patient's chest, those combi pads use impedance to measure interthoracic um, impedance so that it can send the correct amount of joules through the pads. And so what happens during chest compressions as air goes in and out of, chest, out of the chest, it changes interthoracic impedance. And so if you monitor the impedance channel, on like this data channel with the download after the call is over, uh, the CPR, the chest compressions themselves, actually create a waveform that can be viewed on ECG paper. And so um, from that, you can derive the rate of compressions. And because the waveform looks different when, the, for example, the bag is squeezed, they can often also see ventilation. So you can get compression ratios, definitely. And often you can also get uh, ventilation ratios as well. 
there was 1,672 analyzable resuscitations. Um, and, and so they actually looked at the, the frequency of chest compressions. And, and, and so, for example, a 5 to 1 ratio would have been coded as a 1992 guideline, whereas a, uh, a 15 to 2 would be coded as a 2000, and whereas a 30 to 2 would be coded as a 2005. So this is where Patrick was kind of saying, okay, it's one thing to say you're compliant with the guidelines. This is actual data derived from the code itself out in the field to where they and they looked at the data and determined based on it whether or not um, the the guidelines were being complied with and so um, basically um, they came up with the same um, the the same sort of conclusion as the uh, as the previous study that we mentioned in the in the rock trials they just used a completely different methodology. Um, Tim, did you want to make some comments on this trial? Oh, one of the things about the way they do things over there is uh, they don't have uh, so much paramedics as nurses in the pre-hospital environment, so they may be uh, given more leeway in what they do pre-hospitally, while in hospital they may be expected uh, to follow a guideline much more closely. They did a great job of comparing what was actually being done, and I think that's the most important thing to look at. You, know, you, you can look at what people document, and you compare it to the feedback you get from an actual recording of what's going on, and you get slightly different data. And what I want to um, uh, I want to add here um, to the, the the beauty again of this study is they found some very objective data to see the kind of change that was going on. I had a chance this uh, past springtime to go to the Resuscitation Academy in Seattle and spend a week there, learning about how they achieved their um, resuscitation success in both the city of Seattle as well as King County, and they are absolutely committed to downloading the data from every event, AED as well as the monitors, including voice recordings. They, their system requires voice recordings. So there, and they have the staff that is able to sit and analyze every single cardiac arrest event. So when they're looking at the um, impedance a channel to see what was done, they have the voice recording that can help explain what some of those delays in CPR are. So they really get a good picture instead of having to just see a delay and go guess, trying to guess, well, what was that delay from? It's, it's pretty easy to see the pre and post defibrillation when you're using the analytic software, but you're not always, uh, you can't explain all pauses without having the audio channel there. And um, they they really look at um, the resuscitation in great detail, and uh, that information is used only for quality improvement, not for discipline. And they, uh, and that's been a hallmark of that system for for years. But it was very impressive to see the type of objective data they have. And it, don't quote me a hundred percent, but I believe their goal is that they want to have a CPR um, density. 
of 90% compliance for all their cardiac arrests. That's the goal they're shooting for from all of their crews. Well, and I, I think that's the important thing, and, and as Tom had mentioned also, is, is having uh, objective data. And, you know, we were talking earlier about conflict of interest and, you know, how – uh, research is funded, and you know one of the things that they note here is that it was supported by a grant from physio and um, you know when you look at a, a study, I think the, the the big benefit of this is that yes it's it 's funded by a medical device manufacturer, but they 're collecting objective data, and so the they're able to to secure funding from from a corporate entity but are able to show definitively, um, you know, that, that, that their outcome is objective and not subjective in any way. And, and, and that seems to kind of tie in with what King County is doing in that they're able to look at a cardiac arrest and analyze every single pause and explain objectively for that code, for that crew, what that was a result of. One of the problems with recording the data is a lot of states have laws against recording without the consent of everybody there, any audio, uh, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts are some of them. And uh, this shouldn't be a problem. There should be an easy exemption to it, but I know there are a lot of places where they're going to say, oh, that's against the law. We can't do that. That would be bad, as if saving lives is a bad thing to do. Uh, it's something where I don't expect any judge, and I'm no lawyer, but I don't expect any judge to ever convict somebody for using audio recording for quality control, especially if the recording is destroyed soon afterward and it's only used for quality control purposes, not for discipline. And that is one of the most important things that we can do. And um, it's unfortunate that we have uh, some obstacles to implementing that. Along the lines of um, what was just explained about what King County does, there is um, one specific department that I'm familiar with there. And um, one of the things they're doing is they they use the, the same type of data, download off the LightPak 12, look at the impedance channel, um, look at the the proportion of of what everybody's referring to as the the hands-on chest time, and um, they look at that, and they look at the the ventilations to to look for um, the the incidence of hyperventilation if it if it occurs. But then they go further, and they actually provide as part of their whole QI process. They actually provide the feedback with. And if I, if I remember correctly, they actually provide a dashboard-type look back to the providers so they can actually see how they, they actually did um, on that particular call. Because as we all know, it's, it's, it looks a little different when we're in the heat of the moment and trying to take care of that patient versus uh, looking at it later when it's a little calmer. Um, but again, they don't do it in a, in a uh, punitive manner. It is just to let the, the providers know, here's how you did. Something that's very important, and I don't see it in, in a lot of the systems that I've worked in, is getting that constant feedback. Um, one of the things that, I, that I've seen a lot of problems with ECC guidelines is convincing the provider that this is, this is the right thing to be doing, not because 
this is what the protocol book says, but because this is what's actually best for the patient. And giving this kind of feedback points them in that direction. Hey, look, we're, we're much more compliant with what we're supposed to be doing. And hey, we're resuscitating more patients than we did before. So I guess my, my question to the group is, how do we convince systems to A, start providing this feedback, and B, how do we convince field providers to start looking for this feedback? I think what it what it, a lot of it comes down to is the idea of of selling providers and agencies on evidence based medicine, and when you're looking at the disconnect between guidelines which come out every five years and credible research which comes out much more frequently, um, I th- I think if you're able to transition over to uh, convincing, especially agencies, that, that evidence-based medicine is the way to go, um, then it becomes very simple to bring crews in for a morbidity and mortality type feedback, um, much more akin to what medical schools do uh, or, or medical residents go through. And as long as it's presented in that fashion, then I, I think you have to worry a lot less about um, this information being used in a punitive manner, um, you know, if it's all part of the evidence-based process, then it just makes sense to sit a crew down and say, here was the outcome for your patient, here's what the analysis of your code looked like, you know, here are some things we can do next time. And I think if it's presented in, a, in an educational manner rather than a punitive manner, I think crews will, will rise to that occasion. It takes when time great- to... Vi- Tim, please go ahead. One of the great things about the 2005 guidelines was uh, the paper uh, explaining the conflicts, not conflicts of interest, but uh, controversies uh, that they looked at in coming up with the guidelines. And I found that it was much easier to teach people about the new guidelines using that than using the guidelines themselves because it explained why they were changing something. And if you could get people to understand the reasons for it, even if they didn't agree with it, they were more likely to go along with what everybody else was doing later on because you had explained it and uh, the majority of the people began to understand. I had one nurse who would argue with me that intubation was everything and that airway was saving all his patients who were resuscitated. And... Now he's, you know, caught up with everybody else. And he was well-read on the research. Uh, Found a lot of the basic providers just did not like the idea of not ventilating. And now they're much more accepting of it. So uh, the controversies article, and I expect that the Heart Association will have a similar article with these new guidelines, really makes it easier to explain to people who don't like the guidelines or are hesitant to implement parts of the guidelines to see why they're doing it and what it's based on. Um, I think that was, uh, I appreciate hearing that um, because I I think there was a lot of work that went into that in 2005 and it's good to hear that actually uh, um, had some some benefit um, because I t- totally agree with you. Um, some of that information was distilled down into something that was much more brief, um, but still explained the message of here's here's the why behind um, the guideline, um, and um, that will occur 
um, again, um, this time in a in a somewhat similar fashion in terms of documentation or summary type thing of what are the what are those significant changes and why um, in a distilled version. Speaking of controversies of uh, the the ECC guidelines in 2005, I agree with you, Tim. That that was probably one of the most important articles that I read in association with the 2005 guidelines. And um, actually, I think my copy came from resuscitation, so I don't know if there if it had a counterpart in circulation or not, or if it was the same article published in both places or not. But I know I know the one that I had that said contra- controversies of the 2005 guidelines came from uh, from the European Resuscitation Council. But um, one of the things that I liked the most about it it it, it explained where the 30 to two compression ventilation ratio came from and it explained that there was fairly broad agreement that for a sudden cardiac arrest then it's like a primary like someone just clutches their chest on the tennis court and collapses that ventilations are probably unnecessary for the first couple minutes of the arrest but to simplify lay rescuer education it said they came up with a 30 to 2 ratio, so in case it was an asphyxial arrest, that the patient would still be getting some ventilations. And so the, the, the question that, that I had and that I, that I still sort of wonder about is, if the rationale for the 30 to 2 compression to ventilation ratio was to simplify lay rescuer education, why is it when BLS for healthcare provider an ACLS class that, that are geared toward healthcare professionals, why didn't they just simply explain that if it's a sudden cardiac arrest, ventilations are unnecessary for the first couple of minutes because this whole controversy about that, that has come up since then for the cardiocerebral resuscitation and whether or not it's okay for EMS systems to go to continuous chest compression, say, with a non-rebreather mask on the patient for the first two minutes of the arrest. Well, we can't do that because we'll be violating the guidelines. Well, the guidelines said that the reason they did 30 and 2 was because they were afraid that lay rescuers, not professional rescuers, would be unable to determine, perhaps, the difference between a primary sudden cardiac arrest and an asphyxial arrest. So I I guess I wonder if they didn't try a little too hard to come up with a universal sequence. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Tom. No, go ahead, Kyle. But, you know, I think we've seen that in, in, in a lot of these programs nowadays is we've decreased the education. We've decreased the science being placed over to the, to the students, to the learners. I can't tell you the last ACLS class I sat through. I'm just like, just give me the exam. You know, we'll go through it. We'll, you know, we'll go ahead and give it to you. I want to learn more than just, you know, the simple pump low, push a drug here, push a drug there. You know, give me the whys. You know, you know hit that affective domain. And I think that's where we're failing you know, in terms of these courses and, you know, all too often you hear the phrase, we've dumbed down the education. And, and, and why is it? I mean, a lot of people are taking, my wife took ACLS. My wife is a medical assistant at, at a, a cardiology group and they had her take ACLS. So they can't get in depth, but you have paramedics, you have experienced providers who have to make these decisions. In a hospital, you're going to have a physician making, making those, those decisions where the nurses will follow along, you know, and the team will follow. But we're out in the field. We need to make these decisions. We need to understand the reasons why. 
Well, and you're not going to get that from the ACLS class. And so I, I find it... It depends. Um, well, I, I find it interesting that, for example, um, Austin-Travis County EMS no longer requires an ACLS card. And from sort of listening to some of the other podcasts and just monitoring discussions like at NEMSMA and things like that, there are other what I would consider top-tier EMS systems in the country that are moving away from from that model of sending people to go get an ACLS card, especially with the new video-driven ACLS class. Um, I, I don't know that it's applicable to the complex decision-making that we have to do out in the field with EMS. And so I was just wondering, um, uh, Lewis, what do you guys do in Austin, Travis County, do you have your own sort of homegrown um, ACLS class? How does it work out? So it's a good question, and we actually have been having lots of discussion about it. Um, first of all, we do require ACLS to be hired because we look at it as a as a baseline baseline knowledge. You absolutely have to have that baseline knowledge, but we really do look at it as baseline. And um, um, I don't recall the who just mentioned this, but you're absolutely correct that as we gain um, in clinical experience, um, then there's a greater degree of judgment that that is required um, that comes with that that requires a little different decision making um, than you would find um, being asked of you in in your your typical ACLS class. So how do you deal with that? So the way we deal with that is we require it up front, um, and and then our medical director requires that that similar types of components, but at a level that's appropriate for the experience of our providers is um, included in their standard education that, that goes on throughout the year, every year for our paramedic providers. Um, so more advanced, if, you, if I guess that's the way to say it, maybe that's not the best way, but it's something that is more than a baseline education for dealing with resuscitation at the um, ACLS type of level, the paramedic level, um, because I agree that's a decision you, sh you should should make. I will tell you from my experience of working in King County, that is exactly what they do, that as they prepare paramedics, the expectation is that you'll have that baseline knowledge um, when you begin, and the expectation is when you finish the training program, you should be able to know when to adapt and when to change the decision-making depending on what you find with that particular patient. And that's very difficult to teach to a broad audience of that's not homogenous. It's a, ACLS classes, unfortunately, tend to be all kinds of people, as someone just mentioned. It's sometimes even some people who um, may never actually run a, a resuscitation at the advanced level. Um, so that's one of the challenges, and I don't know that we know a good solution, but in Austin, our solution is we include it in regular education throughout their uh, uh, educational program that goes throughout the year. Well, one of the things that you should probably address is what is the Heart Association's approach toward ACLS as far as being standard of care? Do people at uh, the Heart Association consider themselves to be setting standards of care? Well, I'm not sure I can speak on on the what the Heart Association believes, except that I don't think that any of the science subcommittees believe that the training programs are necessarily the standard of care, but that's that's not, I mean, that's just my my opinion based on my involvement with the science subcommittees. The guidelines 
um, the science that supports those things is the, so the, the consensus on science and the guidelines um, are believed to be um, what is the best that we know at the time with the evidence uh, available. The training programs are almost a whole other story, and, and I, I really can't comment much about the training programs. Um, obviously, you know what I do in our system is is different than thinking of that as a as a standard of care because we think of it as a baseline. And, and I want to well, echo uh, in on. I wanted to echo in on ahead, is that. I I just think that that's a. If you're fortunate enough to be in an EMS system that has a uh, a visionary uh, medical director along with senior management that gets the idea of what the concept of a guideline is, but is trying to make sure that the practice that goes on in your community is uh, meeting the needs of your community and. You know, there was a great coin. There was a great term at last year's resuscitation science symposium where it says, "If you've seen one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system. They're all different." And I think it's very important that um, the guidelines be just exactly that, because I think that if you would go to Seattle, uh, King County, you would be surprised. Even the differences between the subtle differences between the city of Seattle and even the county in their uh, approach to medicine. And that's because there's two different medical directors there. And they they set the practice for the community that they're in. And uh, they use the best evidence that's available at the time. And Lewis, help me if I'm wrong, when did they stop analyzing the evidence? It had to at least have been over six months ago, was it, when they stopped adding new information because they just had to have a, a, a line in the sand. Oh, you're referring to this, the 2010 guidelines? Yes. Um, Do you remember there's evidence. a point in time? Yes. Um, so if we kind of go backwards a little bit, in February of 2010 um, was where the, the, what we call the evidence evaluation conference was held where all of these experts were brought together in Dallas to essentially debate. Um, what was considered to be, you know, kind of like, here's where we think we should go with this topic. Here's what the science says. Here's what we think the treatment recommendation is. So that group debates that. And then the only introduction of new evidence is if someone can point out um, some evidence that was not included in the, rec in, 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 the, in the literature review that that author did, then that could be um, brought into evaluation. Otherwise, nothing new was brought in. After that conference, there was, there was nothing new added um, after that, February 1. Um, because after that point in time, then it's a matter of uh, finalizing decisions up until about April-ish or so, um, and then it's writing. Um, you know, compiling all of those things into something that is organized to make some sense so that it can be published um, in the journals that's published in. Um, and then they get finalized and frozen so that the publisher has time to do their part. So even what we call the 2010 guidelines, there's already new research that has been peer-reviewed and finally published that just because of timing, couldn't be included in those guidelines. And there could be, you know, some earth shattering revelation that, that came out in those guidelines, in those, that new research that 
hopefully you're in an EMS system that allows you to embrace those changes if it's if it would is a right fit for your system. And again, I think the guidelines are the floor, not the ceiling. Exactly. Uh, that was kind of what I was looking for. Is since you don't use ACLS at uh, uh, where you work, does uh, the Heart Association frown on that and actually try to change things, or are they accepting and saying, this is not a standard of care we're setting that you may not deviate from? Um, in terms of the the guidelines, the guidelines are just the best science. In terms of the training programs, I believe the HA would love to know what is it they could do to to um, change that so that systems say like mine um, might utilize that program and um, I think that would, that's very ambitious but it's 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 certainly what they'd like to have but as as was just pointed out the science changes so rapidly which is a good thing we shouldn't look at that as a bad thing that's a good thing that people are taking I agree the effort and publishing things, even right now, even after the guidelines are, as we just said, are finalized, I think it's wonderful that those those people, those researchers, are still publishing more. Um, and the ideal is where someone, uh, medical directors and EMS leaders, say, you know, hey, this is the new thing. When we put that together with the research or the evidence from the guidelines, we now come to this conclusion. When we can do that as EMS systems, we'll move further faster. Folks, we're, uh, we're at about 63 minutes of recording time. Um, I'm thinking that's about the, uh, the most that we can expect our listeners to, uh, to sit through. Um, if we had to come up with, uh, with just one take-home message for, for the field providers that are listening, what would that be? I say ask questions. You know, go if, if you're not familiar, if, if you don't know what's going on, if you don't know why they're implementing these these new standards, find out why. Ask somebody to do some reading, do some research, get online, um, because a lot of the science is good science and it does make a lot of sense. And I think you'll have a better appreciation for what you do if you learn why you're doing it. Yeah, and I th I think that by the same token. If you're asking why and you're looking for the evidence and you're looking for the research, then as that new information comes out in the five years between guidelines, then the provider is going to be able to help their system stay uh, up on the latest research and, and have their patient care uh, as progressive as possible even between guidelines coming out. I think the ironic part of uh, the study, the primary study we're looking at, is that two systems were not included because they had already implemented guidelines that were so close to the Heart Association guidelines that there was nothing really for them to change. We run into too many organizations that are afraid to change things because, oh, it's not exactly what the Heart Association guidelines state, when the Heart Association really doesn't state you have to exactly follow the guidelines. They do specifically state in there that they anticipate that experienced physicians will deviate from the guidelines in order to treat the patient they have in front of them according to their experience and training rather than just blindly follow the guidelines. I also, I, 
I agree with everything that has been said, and I would add in there for our listeners, be open-minded to change. Uh, be willing to think that there is something better at it. There has been strong efforts that have been done to try to make sure what's being presented there, that this new floor is a solid floor based on good information at the time. But be willing to accept the fact that in five years from now, in 2015, that there's going to be new a new floor that's going to be laid down. And it we have to be open to that change. So, so a willingness to embrace the change as it comes along, I think is very important. Um, I will add one more thing. I agree with everything that was said as well. I think there were excellent points. Um, and I would add one more thing. Um, I would encourage every EMS system to try to be part of the research. What that fire department that I mentioned is doing in um, King County, what the Netherlands, what they're doing, um, those are not super difficult things for other EMS systems to do. If you have those simple resources that, that where you have the data, it's just the time. Um, and you can do those things, and I would encourage more EMS systems to do those things, and more importantly, find ways to publish those things so that you contribute to the research. We need more of it coming from EMS systems. That's a great place and, to, uh, to stop. Um, I want to thank uh, Luis Gonzalez for taking time out of his evening to uh, be here with us. Uh, hopefully we can convince him to come back and discuss some more topics in the future. Um, Luis, if people want to get a hold of you, what's the best way to do that? Um, my uh, email address, I guess, is probably the best, if you'd like for me to give you that. Um, it is uh, L-O-U-I-S dot G-O-N-Z-A-L-E-S, and then the numeral 2, at C-I dot Austin, that's A-U-S-T-I-N, dot T-X dot U-S. Great. Thank you. Uh, Kyle David Bates, where can people find you? And how do they get a hold of you? They can find me on Twitter at ImageMedic. You can find me at my website, KyleDavidBates.com. And you can also find me over at the FirstFewMoments.com website as well. Great. Tom uh, Boothelay, where can we find you and how do we get a hold of you? Uh, you can find me at my website at EMS12Lead.com or send me an email at EMS12Lead at gmail.com. All right. Tim Noonan, where are you? Well, uh, first, I'd like to also thank Lou for helping us with this, and thank you for starting up this EMS research podcast. Uh, this is something that we need. Uh, I'm at roguemedic.com and also at paramedicine101.com, and Tom writes there as well. Great. Bill Toon, where can we find you? Uh, you can hunt me down at uh, on Twitter at WFToon. But also, uh, and I failed to mention this before, I'm one of the co-hosts of the EMS Educast, and you can find us on our Facebook page, and that's also another excellent way to get a hold of me if you uh, want to chat. All right, great. Uh, Patrick Lickus. Uh, I want to thank everybody again um, for being a part of this and, and echo what Tim said. Um, I think this is something that's definitely necessary. Um, I can be found at 510medic.com, uh, on Twitter at 510medic, um, or on Gmail, 510paramedic at gmail.com. And then uh, there's links on my website to Facebook and LinkedIn and all those other sites. Great. People can find me at, uh, at the Mac Medic on Twitter. Uh, email themacmedic at gmail.com. 
We also have uh, a Twitter account set up for the podcast itself, EMS Research Cast on Twitter. Um, and uh, we will have a website shortly, and people can uh, Skype us comments if they wish or contact us by email at uh, emsresearchcast at gmail.com, and the Skype is emsresearchcast. Um, I want to thank everybody on the panel for being here tonight. I know uh, this uh, took us a while to, to uh, set up. I think it's going to be well worth it, and um, I really appreciate everybody uh, putting up with me, feeling my way through getting this started. Um, until our next episode, I want to... Uh, Hope every, want to say thank you and hope everybody uh, everybody will come back in a couple weeks when we do our next topic. Thank you and everybody have a good evening. That's what I want.